This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Some of the mightiest acts of God in the history of the world have taken place at night. Many of these great nights of the Bible are found in the pages of the New Testament, but today we're looking at a passage from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 12. I want to make, make an acknowledgement to a Presbyterian minister of some 80 years ago, Dr. Clarence McCartney, who calls this night the Night of Doom. It was a night which opened up a new chapter in God's dealings with the world. These are the words of Dr. McCartney. It was about dusk dark. The sun was just beginning to set. Shadows lengthened over the land of Egypt, and the people of Israel looked up and saw silhouetted against the sky the mighty Egyptian temple. Some saw the grand and majestic palace where the Pharaoh lived. It was not a beautiful sight for them. Since this represented the slavery in which they had been bound for all these past 400 plus years. <clears throat> you see, Israel was a race of slaves, and conditions were getting worse by the day, it seemed. How much longer could they endure this slavery? Oh, sure, there had been promises of a deliverer, but this story had been passed down for many years, and it seemed that nothing was ever being done. Generations had come and gone, and here they were, still in slavery. The night grew darker. The moon began to shed its glow over all the land, over the temple, the palace, the river, the fields, the desert. One could now only faintly see beside the banks of the winding Nile River the numerous canals, the tall palm trees waving their branches in the soft evening air. And as the day was ending now, the Egyptians were beginning to sleep. In his marble palace, flanked by stately columns, on the top of which were carvings of fierce angels, or rather eagles, whose eyes flashed with precious stones, Egyptians' number one ruler, the Pharaoh, was now sound asleep. <clears throat> in the pagan temples of Isis and Osiris, the fire had now sunk low on the altars, and the priests and their attendants were now asleep also. <clears throat> in the huts and in the lowly cottages, the common Egyptian laborers were deep in sleep too, resting from a tiring day of heavy manual labor. In the prison dungeon, there was the captive who had broken the Egyptian law. This man, along with his equally guilty son, was chained there. But now he was not thinking about his raw wrists and the pain which the chains inflicted. He was finally able to get some sleep. All the Egyptians were asleep now, and what a peaceful sleep it was. Gone now were those trying days 
which they had been through when those terrible plagues had almost been more than they could take. Those plagues were first water that had turned to blood, the fish died, smelled horrible, no water to drink. <clears throat> Second plague was about frogs. They were in homes, beds, foods, and clothes. The third plague was lice on man and beast. The fourth plague was one of flies, not just a few, but they came in swarms. The fifth plague was that of cattle disease. The sixth, boils. Even the Egyptian magicians could not stand before Moses because of their boils. The seventh plague was that of hailstones. And the eighth, locusts, like grasshoppers, which ate every piece of grass and green things which the hail did not kill. And the ninth plague, that of darkness. It was so terrible you could even feel it. All this was now over. The enraged and stubborn Pharaoh had told Moses he did not want to see his face anymore, and if he came to the palace just one more time, he'd be killed. And so Moses replied to Pharaoh, maybe not even knowing how prophetic his words were. And the 10th chapter of Exodus, verse 29, we read the words of Moses to Pharaoh, who said, Very well, I will never see you again. The nine plagues were past, but soon, even this very night, would come the worst of all, the climax of God's judgment against that wicked Pharaoh. All of the Egyptians were asleep, but not so with God's people, the Israelites. In the homes of these despised slaves, the Hebrews, things were quite different. Walk down the street with me in one of these Hebrew villages. As the moon casts its faint glow on the dirt of the street, we see that everything is strangely quiet. There's not a single Jew to be seen anywhere out in the street. Where is everybody? We walk over to one of the wooden doors of one humble cottage, and we see there around that door a gory sight. On the two side frames of the door and on the panel above the door, fresh blood has been smeared everywhere. If we could look inside, we'd probably see an equally amazing sight. Inside every home, the family was now standing around a table where a roasted lamb is ready to be eaten. All the members of the family have their traveling clothes on. They're ready for a long journey. They have long poles or walking sticks in their hands. They're wearing comfortable walking shoes. On the face of everyone, there's a very serious look of expectation, almost of fear. If a little child in the family starts to go toward the door, someone grabs him quickly because God has issued a command for this special night, none of you shall go out. That's Exodus 12, verse 22. As the hour of midnight approaches, the family members begin to eat the roasted lamb. They eat hurriedly, and then it happened. Suddenly, there was heard a loud and terrible cry, which was heard all over the land of Egypt. 
It was more piercing than a siren. It was a long, anguished, agonizing cry of woe. In his grand palace, Pharaoh had become restless in his sleep. He, he had a sense of dread. So he called for his young son, the prince. But when his son did not come immediately, Pharaoh went to see why. And he found the prince of his realm, his firstborn son, dead. Egyptian parents stirred uneasily in their sleep, and they called for their oldest sons, only to find that they too were now cold in death. Egyptian mothers had some kind of premonition that something was wrong with their babies. And so as they hurried over to the cribs, these mothers screamed out in heart-rending shrieks, My baby is dead! In the dungeon where the prisoner shook his chains on his wrists when he heard the cry, he wanted to ask his son what this was all about, but there was no response. His son was dead too. In the pagan temples of Isis and Osiris, the heathen priests called on their gods to restore life to their dead children, but their cry was in vain. In the fields, even cattle moaned over their dead. Why all this? The words of our text for today give the answer. Exodus 12, 29. And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. This was a night of doom. Death reigned in the palace, in the cottage, in the temple, in the dungeon, on the river, on the highway, in the fields, everywhere. Death, death, death. And a great cry of anguish went up to Egypt's skies that night. But in all the houses of the Hebrews, God's people, where according to God's commandment, they had sprinkled blood around the doors, there was no death. The death angel had passed over these homes. In Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13, we read the promise that God had given to them. That same night I will pass through Egypt and kill the firstborn son in every family and the firstborn male of all animals, I am the Lord, and I will punish the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses will show me where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Then you won't be bothered by the terrible disasters I will bring on Egypt. Uh, there was in, an immediate reaction from the now frantic Pharaoh. He called for Moses and Aaron and said, Leave us. Please go away. All of you, go and serve Jehovah, as you said. Take your flocks and herds and be gone. And when the sun had set that night, Israel was a race of slaves. But when the sun rose the next morning, Israel was a nation on the march, a nation of people who were now free. After 400 plus years of slavery, these people had survived the night of doom 
because of their obedience to God and their hour of deliverance had come. Now I'm sure they didn't have airplanes back then, but if there could have been an airplane to write two words in the sky the next day, those two words would hover over Egypt for everybody to see. The two words, God wins. Years before, one of the cruel rulers of Egypt, the Pharaoh, had issued an order that all boy babies born to the Jews must be killed. In thousands of Jewish homes, there was sorrow and grief as the cruel and ruthless soldiers of the Pharaoh came bursting into the homes, grabbing up these little boy babies and taking them away. These soldiers then took all these precious infants to the Nile River and threw them in, heartlessly drowning them. These Hebrew people had been forced to live with oppression of many other sorts also. They were slaves to the Egyptians, of course, but there was no soft, easy treatment which they received at the hands of their captors. It was an existence of constant persecution and torture. Meanwhile, where was God while all this was going on? These were supposed to be God's chosen people. But no doubt they began thinking, if this is the way God deals with us, then we wish somebody else would choose us rather than God. Centuries had come and gone, and God had seemingly done nothing. Where was God? No, God was not asleep. But God is never in a hurry. Behind all the affliction that these people were was enduring, God was keeping watch over his own. And now, when the time was right, when the cup of Egypt's iniquity was full, God was ready to step in. And this is what he did on that night of doom. The great Russian writer Maxim Gorky states the fact of judgment in these words. He said, life has its wisdom. Its name is accident. Sometimes it rewards us, but more often it takes revenge on us. And just as the sun endows each object with a shadow, so the wisdom of life prepares retribution for every person's act. This is true, this is inevitable, and we must all know and remember it. So said the Russian writer Gorky. Well, I could quarrel with him in his choice of words. Yes, it was true. Life has its wisdom, but its name is not accident. His name is God. Even when the hour is the darkest, God is still on his throne, and he knows just the right time to step in and redeem his people. He knows just the right time to bring about some changes in your life, your circumstances, and he's going to do this according to his schedule, not according to ours. You remember the words in the book of Job? In the 38th chapter, we have the answer which God gave to Job out of the whirlwind. Let me read a few verses from Job chapter 38, beginning with the first verse. From out of a storm, the Lord said to Job, Why do you talk so much when you know so little? Now get ready to face me. Can you answer the questions I ask? 
How did I lay the foundation for the earth? Were you there? Doubtless you know who decided its length and width. What supports the foundation? Who placed the cornerstone while morning stars sang and angels rejoiced? When the ocean was born, I set its boundaries and wrapped it in blankets of thickest fog. Then I built a wall around it, locked the gates, and I said, Your powerful waves stop here. They can go no farther. This continues on for the remainder of chapter 38 of Job through chapter 39 and even on into chapter 40. God talking with Job. Our God is all-powerful and to every raging sea of destruction, he is able to say, you may come this far, no farther. This is what God said to the Egyptians that night. Oh, yes, the wrong seemed off so strong, but God was the ruler yet. And on this night of doom, God won. But there's a far greater truth which we as Christians can find in this story. That story is that this was the setting of an event which was later to come in which God would show an even greater deliverance of his people, not just a nation, but the people in all the world who come to him. Thousands of years have passed since that night of nights, that night of doom, when the Hebrews stood around those tables in their homes, waiting for that dreadful signal which would send them forth on their march to freedom. And throughout all these thousands of years, that night has been commemorated in Judaism by the Feast of the Passover its name being taken from the fact that the death angel passed over the houses where the blood of the lamb was sprinkled over the doorposts. And around 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered with his disciples one evening. They were getting ready to eat the Passover meal, commemorating this very event. The disciples came to Jesus and asked him, where would you like for us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? The arrangements were made. And as Jesus sat at the table with his disciples, their minds surely went back over the years to the events we've been thinking about in these past few minutes. Jesus then took that old feast and gave it a new meaning. He took the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he poured out the cup and said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. What did all this mean? It is the heart of the gospel that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which was killed even as lambs were sacrificed on that night of doom. And so Christ has become our sacrifice for us. This is what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. This is what Isaiah had reference to when he wrote, even before Jesus came in the flesh, Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. With his stripes, we are healed. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. This is the first great truth of our faith. And it's obviously a wonderful truth because this is one area in which so many people try to undermine the gospel. The fact that we are saved by the shed blood of Jesus 
is offensive. It's repugnant to many people today. They say, leave out all that talk and singing about the blood. Well, we can get rid of all those hymns which refer to the blood of Jesus. Where would you like to start? Uh, maybe with the old rugged cross? One of the phrases in that, in the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. Or what about another hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross? Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. What about the hymn that many people sing today, a more recent hymn, How Great Thou Art? You remember one of the stanzas? And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. <clears throat> At one church there was an innovative young pastor who decided this imagery of the blood of Jesus was too harsh. So when they came to the time for the Lord's Supper in his church, he distributed to the congregation the flowers of the season. Well, I think we all like flowers, but there's a danger of becoming so modern and up-to-date that we lose the significance of what Jesus did for us on the cross. To me, the substituting of flowers is just about as foolish as what another preacher did. He used Pepsi-Cola and potato chips instead of the bread and cup. The central truth is that Jesus died for us. He died in our place, just like the lamb which was sacrificed and whose blood caused the death angel to pass by those homes. We too are passed from death into life when Jesus has become our sacrifice, our lamb, our substitute. I mentioned Dr. Clarence McCartney a while back. He tells about a man who visited the battlefield of Chickamauga during the last years of the Civil War. This was a place where a fierce battle had occurred. It was not a beautiful place back then with stately monuments rising among beautiful trees. No, it was rather a place which bore scars of the recent battle and there were many mounds of fresh dirt that bore testimony to those who had died there. This man who was walking through that battlefield saw another man, a visitor there, on his knees at one gravesite, planting flowers. Walking over to him, this man said in a very kindly voice, Is your son, is it your son who's buried there? The other man answered, No. An uncle then? Perhaps a brother? Some other relative? And again, the man kneeling on his knees planting flowers said, no, none of those. Well, the inquirer did not want to be too inquisitive, but he said, may I ask then whose memory it is that you cherish and are honoring by planting these flowers at his grave? And the man gladly explained. He had been drafted into the Confederate Army. It was a custom back then that one who was drafted did not have to serve in the war if a substitute, a replacement, could be secured. But he could find no such person. 
And just before he was ready to say goodbye to his wife and family, a young man came up to him and said, you have a wife and a family depending on you. When you're gone, you cannot support them. But I'm not married, and I have no one depending on me. Let me go to war in your place. Well, the offer was accepted, and the young man went off to his place at training camp. At the Battle of Chickamauga, the young man was killed. The news of his death drifted back to the southern home of the man whose place he had taken. As soon as he could save enough money, the man made a trip to Chickamauga and found the grave of his friend, a grave which was marked only by a crude marker. The visitor who had been listening to this explanation was much touched by this story, and after hearing it, he went his own way, leaving the man at the grave of his friend. But before he left the battlefield, however, he made one last trip by that grave of the young man. The other man who had been planting the flowers was gone now, but the grave was covered with flowers freshly planted. There was also a rough board at the head of the grave, nailed to a stake which was driven into the ground. On the board, the man had cut four words. He died for me. This is the heart of the Christian gospel, that Jesus died for each of us. He became our sacrifice, and he is the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Yes, it was a night of doom for the Egyptians, but it was a night of deliverance for God's people. The best news that anyone can hear is that there is one who loves you so much he was willing to die on your behalf. The German artist Sternberg painted a great picture of Christ, the Messiah. Here's how that picture happened to be painted. Sternberg was walking along the street in his city one day when he happened to see a beautiful little gypsy girl. The artist asked her if she would be willing to go to his studio so that he might paint her. And while she was sitting there having her portrait done, she looked up and saw on the wall a half-finished portrait of Christ on the cross. Not knowing anything about Jesus, the little gypsy girl asked, Who was that? When Sternberg told her, she said, Oh, he must have been a very wicked man to have been nailed to a cross. Then the painter told the little girl that, on the contrary, Christ was the best man who ever lived, and he died on a cross so others might live. In her simple innocence, the little girl asked the, the artist, Did he die for you? That question touched the old man's heart and his conscience, for he himself was not a Christian at that time. But he could not get away from that question for days thereafter. Did he die for you? That question so weighed on his mind and heart that it continued to haunt him day and night. Finally, he could resist no longer. And he came to accept in his own life the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for him too. So let me leave you today with that same question. Did he die for you?
not only for your salvation, but also he died for you to have his abundant life. Oh God, we have no words to thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Accept our feeble expression of love and praise, not only in the words of a prayer, but in the life that we seek to live for Jesus and for his sake. Amen.